Oh, are we live? Yeah. We're just recording. <laughs> yeah. So we're live. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, hey, um, that's a good first question. Yeah. Hey there, this is Spencer Dennis, and welcome to Level Up Radio, presented by Coach Now. On today's show, we've got Jim Liston, one of my absolute favorites in the world of coaching and training and just all around uh, education, honestly. He's one of the most dynamic people that I know. He is the sports science director for Toronto Football Club, as well as the co-founder and president of Cats Sports. And for those of you that don't know Cats, Cats is a super dynamic uh, functional movement, multifaceted training facility with uh, numerous locations across the country. And on this conversation with Jim, we're going to dive into a lot about the business of coaching and training. Uh, Jim's background is uh, from the days of personal training, and then it went all the way to all the things that I'm mentioning now. So he's got a long history that he dives deep into and shares a lot of nuggets on how to build a coaching and training business. And we also get into the specifics of what it means to be coaching and training at such a high level as he is. So with that, hope you enjoy the episode. I know I had a great time chatting with Jim, and I, I really hope that you enjoy listening to it. Thanks so much. After making that post, one of the most popular posts that I've made, I think, talking about just the basics of business. So mm-hmm. let, let's talk about the business of coaching, but if I'm brand new, let's put kind of mm-hmm. that spin on it. Mm-hmm. So I'm a brand new coach. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking to just get started, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe I've just gotten certified through mm-hmm. ACE or NASM. Yeah. What kind of things would, looking back on your career, would you mm-hmm. advise someone like that to, to do? And they're in personal training kind of per- fitness? Yeah, group? let's start in the personal training side of things, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Great. Spitball, yeah, whatever you would suggest. Oh, are we live? Yeah. We're just recording. <laughs> yeah. So we're live. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, hey. Um, that's a good first question. Yeah. Uh, if I look back, um, kind of 1992 when I started, it's a while ago, I got out of graduate school, personal training, corporate fitness. And I think, um, if you're going into a, a, it's a new field for you and it's a new market, uh, that it's important to a take classes. Okay. And B try to teach a class. Okay. So you're taking uh, like, other people's classes to learn how the structure goes. The structure, uh, the rhythm of it, the flow of things, how they found their find their voice because you've got to find out what's going to differentiate you between your competitors. Right. Because in the end, everybody that's teaching a class in there, they might teach classes in other gyms or they might be trainers themselves. Um, and you've got to what is your unique quality or qualities? Yep. Um, you know, and then where is your what's your target? Are you a personal trainer to everybody, or you, the more specific you get? You certainly narrow the customer base, but if you find your niche that you can fit in a gym, it happens faster because you find one or two people. I'm going for that over 40 to 55 market, um, busy working men and women. Yep. All right. Bam. What do they like? They like to get in and get out in 45 minutes, mm-hmm. right? They want to do it before work. Um, it's usually the younger crowd that wants to come after work. So then you start to define who you are. And then when your customers want to train, mm-hmm. um, to go in there and try to be everything to everybody because you were just recently certified or got out of school or both um, can set you back, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say get the lay of the land. Take Again, go back to taking classes in the gym currently. Find out what your niche is going to be um, and make sure that niche fits your, fits your lifestyle. If you're looking for that working person then, and, you don't like the, and you're not a morning person, then mm-hmm. that might be a problem. Mm-hmm. Right, so see who's in the gym at the times that you want to work, mm-hmm. and then what are their needs? Because you're trying to fit a need, um, and it's and most people want to be feel fit, lose weight, be tone. Um, so it's pretty simple. And there right. are those that want to be pain free or trying to get back into sport. But again, if you're somebody that you're trying to deal with pain management, or somebody that's in sport, or somebody that's trying to lose weight, like now you're trying to again trying to be everything to everybody, right? Who are you? Be specific. Make sure it fits your passion and the time that you want to work, yep. and you and you start there. Yeah. So I, I've given that advice a lot too, and I hear mm-hmm. it a lot, right? To knit yourself out. So like in the world of golf, you're not gonna. Yep. It used to be common to just say I'm a, a swing instructor or something like that, but now there's people that are niching out further mm-hmm. to be a specialty coach, right? And mm-hmm. I give that advice across all the industries. So I think the tricky part is though, although that's sound advice that we all have been given. And I think eventually when you are of our age, let's say, yeah. been through the business, you evolve into your niche. 
no one really gave me the advice to find a niche early on, so maybe that would have changed the way mm-hmm. I went about it. Um, but I'm curious, with the advice of finding the niche, do you have any kind of tips on how to identify that? I know you're talking about taking class and getting lay of the land, mm-hmm. but is there anything else that kind of stands out? Well, I think it's uh, where does your where does your passion lie? Where do you think you can help? Mm-hmm. Where do you think that you are providing a service that you would enjoy providing? Because uh, then it's going to sing to you. Right. Um, again, is it maybe it's training youth athletes, mm-hmm. and if that's the case, and you find that you're comfortable there, then that's where you go. Right. Um, I think when you get into this field, you want to feel like at the end of the day that you've provided a service for people that have improved their lives. Really, that's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a you're working in technical training with a youth basketball player, or you're looking for um, weight loss for somebody that's in their 50s. Right. Um, where do you want to be? Yeah. And where do you think you can affect change? So, you know, that being said, okay, and now I'm in this field, then you need to have an understanding of kind of the social emotional, which sometimes gets lost. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just about the program. I think when I got out of school, it's like, man, I had the best programs. I knew so much or I thought I did. And, you know, quite frankly, some of my clients or many of them aren't getting results. And then I just didn't realize that it's behavior change. And so as you're getting into the field, it's what behaviors are you trying to change, improve, enhance, add. Um, I would say add, if you have a cli- if you have clientele, it's add before you subtract. Okay, but, what do you mean by that? So if I was going to say, you find somebody that is looking to lose weight. Okay. It's really easy to say, well, don't eat chips and hot dogs and all, drink soda. Sure. Well, everybody knows that. Everybody's had that. How about we add a behavior? You okay. know what? Let's add in that now you're going to take a a flask of water and you're going to drink six bottles of water a day. Mm -hmm. Let's add a behavior. Because it's a lot easier to add than it is to take something away. Interesting. So I'm adding it in. I feel better. I'm more hydrated. And then it's their choice to eliminate the soda or the juice or the Gatorade or whatever. Well, like a lot of times, right, when you add a new new habit or a new Mm -hmm. behavior, automatically that kind of kickstarts some things in your Mm -hmm. brain or in the way that you're cravings are mm-hmm. right so like for me i wanted to get generally better in shape swimming seems to be the thing that i love to do the most but what i found is that when i swim it jump starts everything else right mm-hmm. i tend to lift weights right. more often i'm more yeah. conscious about what i'm eating it's just yeah. kind of that catalyst for me yeah and it's a and, and change you know change change takes time so if you're adding something then it becomes if it's if there's autonomy right then it's your customer your client says oh, I'm drinking all this water, then maybe I don't need that soda. I'll just drink water at lunch. Sure. So it's their yeah. decision. Yeah. And once it becomes their decisions, it's it's much better than you telling them. It's them owning it and thinking about it and yeah. making a choice on their own, which we know when you kind of talk about theories of motivation, like you can't motivate anybody. It's got to be intrinsic. So self-determination theory, it's if I feel like I, I have choice or autonomy in the decision-making, I'm more likely to sustain that habit. Mm-hmm. So thinking in those terms by adding a behavior with your, your client that is simple, then let them make decisions on their own. They're far more likely to change their behavior and make it a habit. Mm-hmm. So thinking back through, through your career, right, and now that you're at kind of the upper echelon of, of sports science and everything else, mm-hmm. um, how, what was kind of the aha moment when you kind of discovered your niche? Can you kind of think back to that when it was... Well, light I can bulb went off on what you should be doing or where you wanted to go, and I'm sure you've evolved couple, since then. A couple light bulbs. So yeah, yeah, so the first light bulb I think was when I got out of school and I was in hospitality management and I was working mm-hmm. in Florida and working weekends, having Mondays off. And um, you know, after work, I'd be going to the gym and I spent a year or so down there. And I said, my first aha moment was this kind of isn't the lifestyle I want. Mm. Um, like sports, like science, math, working out. I, I should probably go to school and, and find a, a mm. niche a niche there. So that's when I went to move back to Springfield and went to graduate school at Springfield College. So then I went out to Pasadena and you know did personal training, uh, corporate fitness, women's fitness competitions with a company that I worked with. I liked it, mm-hmm. um, but it didn't really didn't really resonate with me. And then I was connected with some youth soccer clubs and getting into sport. One of the sports I played, which I enjoy watching uh, and training them to be, to optimize their performance. And I think that's the light bulb. Like 
it for me it's about performance for me it's about finding athletes and helping them get better mm-hmm. pushing the limits being thoughtful in the training making sure the training is um you know this idea of sports specificity it's really having them become a better athlete within their sport mm-hmm. uh and and that was that was it working with the youth athletes and then in when major league soccer started in 1996 uh, you know, I met some guys in 1997, the guys that I coached with in Toronto, uh, that we trained together. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the light was working with the pros is terrific. Yeah. Uh, because they want to be great and they make a living doing it. And then I felt like, okay, I think I can, I can help there. Right. Um, and I've kind of been there ever since. I still, I'm still in the youth game, work with other sports, but, um, I enjoy the game of soccer, the demands of soccer, watching it, the athletes that are in it, and that's probably how I ended up, but it really started working with in youth sports in the mid-90s. Right. And from a business perspective, I was always told, especially in the world of golf, mm-hmm. if you want to have a recession-proof business, focus on juniors, right? Because mm-hmm. parents will keep paying mm-hmm. for the instruction yeah. and in hopes that their uh, son yeah. or daughter will reach these high mm-hmm. goals of college yeah. or professional, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's the same just about in every business. Focus on the juniors, but then mm-hmm. also if you want to have a long career, right? If mm-hmm. you're at the high performance level of yeah. college or pro, then you're going to yeah. keep working. Yeah, and, and there aren't a ton of jobs, to no, be fair, not. at the highest level. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, working with the juniors and making a living is a, is a wonderful thing. And you know that some of your athletes will reach their aspirations of being a pro or college and, and others won't. But in the end, you know that you've contributed to a great experience. Right. Um, because it's a lot more fun when you're good at it. Right. And learning to work on a skill or try to be better is a quality that will suit you for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, being involved in sports and part of a team and all of that social emotional part of it is good in life. Mm-hmm. Learning to train and be disciplined and push yourself to limits is also a good thing you can carry into life. So even if your son or daughter doesn't make it to that top level where they aspired, they have this 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 beautiful part of sport is all of those lessons that you get along the way right. and the friendships that you develop along mm-hmm. the way. Um, but, you know, the desire to be great, the ones that are great are the ones that probably they certainly had the, the genes to do it, but they put the time in. Right. So how, how did you go from, we went from the world of hospitality, which is actually a huge leg up, I think, for you going mm-hmm. back into training, right? Or yeah. starting into training, yeah. so you had a business acumen yeah. of sorts. So let's talk about how you went from the training side, and then we kind of skipped mm-hmm. a few steps to where you're mm-hmm. now at this high performance level. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about CATS, how you got involved in building out yeah. actual brick and mortar facilities, because that's what a lot of people strive to do, right. but they don't even know where to start. Yeah. Uh, I think there's that that point when you you so you found your niche, you're successful, um, and you realize you've built a job, not a business. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you're working early in the morning to get that before work market, lunchtime for that group, in the afternoons for the youth soccer players, mm-hmm. in the evening, so that you realize that man, you're working a lot of hours, and if you are not working, you're not getting paid. Right, and. Uh, had a company, True Fitness, with Rich and Mia Finnegan, um, who I moved out with. And we had trainers that worked with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you take a percentage of that, and you're training them and doing the continued education. Uh, then you get that takes you to a certain point. Is that where you want to be? And I think everybody has the, not everybody, many of us have that bricks and mortar mm-hmm. desire. I, mm-hmm. I just want to put an anchor in here because I have a belief that what we're doing is different and people will pay for it. Right. Um, so that's kind of how it starts. Yeah. And then where are you going to get the money for from it? Where are you going to, where are you going to put, like the location? Where are you going to yeah. put it? Like most people don't want to travel more than five miles, right? So you could have the best, cheapest, biggest place, right? 10,000 square foot facility. But if it's seven miles from where everybody is, the dense population is, then, then forget it. Right. So the idea of location, location, location is pretty true. Yeah. Uh, so it's find that but even if you look before that it is okay what is the business look like mm-hmm. can we can the numbers make it so for us it was how do you get away from personal training one on one having a few trainers work for you for two classes yeah and and if you look around now i mean the idea of small studios whether it's soul cycle bar method pilates small 2000 square feet maybe low overhead yeah. instructors that 
know how to move a room, move mm-hmm. a group. Um, and they're all over. They're popping up all over the place. Yeah. Uh, again, I think it kind of goes to who's in your market yep. and what's your niche. And then crunch the numbers. How many classes does it take to do that? What are you going to pay your instructors? What's the overhead? What's the rent? I mean, you got to keep the lights on, right? Mm-hmm. Your biggest stress is going to be paying paying rent and paying, paying for your staff. Yep. <laughs> so um, you've got to realize that that really then becomes 24-7, 365, mm-hmm. if that's what you want. Um, nobody's, if, if, if the alarm went off at 2.30 in the building, you're getting the call. Yep. Nobody else is getting the call. Yep. You're the one that has to go to the facility. If an instructor doesn't show up at five in the morning, you're getting the call. You got to go unlock it, and you got to teach the class. So if you're cool with it, I would say I would say great, right? Uh, but it goes back to what do you think you're going to be good at? Where would you put it? How much is it going to cost? Um, how are you going to train the instructors? And I would say just go for it, right? And I, I right? think I think a lot of people mistakenly, let's say, start a restaurant because they love to cook, mm-hmm. and then they right. realize they never cook. Yeah. Right. So if you're getting wanting to create a brick and mortar around your coaching or training or whatever Mm -hmm. you're doing, the odds are in the end, you're probably not going to actually be doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. On a daily basis, you're going to be managing everyone else doing it. Yeah. So I I think it's the the idea that you're working. It's the challenge. Right. Am I working on the business or am I working in the business? If I'm working in the business, I'm still teaching and coaching all the time. Mm hmm. And every hour or two hours that you do that, you're taking away from working on the business, which mm-hmm. is marketing it, find out if your customers are satisfied, um, and, and teaching your instructors what to do, being out there in the community and volunteering, how much did you volunteer, how much are you going to spend in paid advertising. Like, you got to work on the business all the time. Right. So that means that you have to be pretty airtight with your instructors and how you train them. Right. And who you're recruiting. So how long... So you came up with the idea, right, that you wanted a brick and mortar of sorts. You had partners. I mean, it evolved, right? It wasn't just out of nowhere that right, you decided right. to build a facility. But let, let's walk through kind of the nitty gritty without all the details per se, yeah. but just got an idea. How do I find funding? How do I find partners that can help me get there? Because most trainers aren't going to have 100K just hiding out. Yeah, so if I so I, I had um, met with the... Kevin Wentz, who I started Cats with back in 1995. He was a physical therapist in Pasadena area, and I was okay. training, like I said, athletes. Right. We crossed paths. Chris Armas, who played for the Galaxy, was hurt, and Kevin did his rehab. Anyway, so he had a facility, small uh, PT facility in Pasadena. Mm-hmm. So you know, we started to keep in touch and then said, you know what? Philosophically, I think we line up. Then, you know, what if, what if we expanded the space because at the time it was 7,500 square feet but only about 2,500 was this PT area mm. and all the rest were offices oh okay so we're like why don't we just take a sledgehammer and just knock down all the walls and is this where the current facility still mm-hmm. is no, no the Starbucks there now okay got it <laughs> so there's Starbucks um, so there was an x-ray room in the back and then got rid of that and just knocked down walls and lifted ceilings and made a training area okay. so now it became PT slash training. Mm-hmm. And that's really where we started. And it basically, it was three adults. Um, Kathy and Linda would come together. And then Noel would come Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So it started out with basically three people. We'd do a morning class. Noel would be the only person there. And then Kathy and Linda would come at 12, at 1130. But we started. We just had that belief. Mm-hmm. Teams started to come in the evenings. Classes started to grow. Um, people told their friends, now you have an, now you have an 8.30 class, a 9.30 class. Now you have a 6.30 and 8.30 and 9.30. 6.30, 8.30, 9.30, 11.30. Now you have evening classes. And it's only a, a 7,500 square foot place that wasn't totally designed for it. Our track was only 15 yards at the time. Okay. Four lanes, really three and a half. Uh, but because you understood results and how to create the environment and what exercises you should put in order when you're doing these circuits, and people loved it. Yeah. Then you think, should we go? Should we grow? Um, and what would that look like? What would the optimal facility look like? Well, we'd probably want to be able to run at least 20 meters. We'd want some turf down. Mm-hmm. We'd want high ceilings so we can throw things. Um, enough room. Like the PT area wasn't separate um, treatment rooms. It was really a wide open space. So sure. then you started looking for buildings. Mm-hmm. Because but by knocking down walls, and, and we didn't change the rent. I came over there, and we put performance in there and PTY, so very low okay. overhead, Got which it. I think is 
start start with that for you, sure. yeah and you got to make sure what like what are you trying to do what are your classes how are you going to generate revenue because why don't sign a lease until you know yeah you're pretty sure that you've got something yeah and if you can go test it so if you had an idea for a class and you could then go test it in a gym and people really liked it and you thought okay maybe this is my niche and i can go do it and where could i do it try to keep the the expenses low like mm-hmm. literally we knock down the walls ourselves mm-hmm <laughs> bring a drywall person in we put the floor in f- ourselves um we bought dumbbells limited equipment you'd lease a few step mills try not to outlay too much cash a few treadmills and the rest of the time we're just running on the track or outside right on the sidewalk right and you realize it's just about you're building a community okay a community that enjoys working out hard i mean some people are like, oh, it's too hard there, which we lost customers because of it. But at the end of the day, it is kind of hard, and it's how much you push yourself. And sure. if it was a former athlete, that's probably going to like the way we train. Yep. Um, and if they weren't, they probably wouldn't. And I, you have to be okay with that. Because then the people say, oh, you should do this and that. Be careful of that the customer isn't always right. Or the mm-hmm. non-customer, like, what are you providing? Uh, and then when, then we just, um, we searched. We searched for a building for a couple of years and then found a 14,000 square foot building a block away. Um, to move into what you would consider like the flagship, right? The optimal for performance training, for PT, um, making it kind of a destination. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then you're like, you know, like anybody, the first day you open up, I remember it was April Fool's Day. I'm like, "Hmm." (laughs) oh boy, April Fool's Day. April 1st, was that a good day? But you just wait and you go, hope people come. Yeah. Um, And did you take outside capital to to get the building or just a business loan? Or how did you go about bringing the money together? No, we were okay. We were okay cash-wise. So you're okay from the kind of modest start. Mm -hmm. And you guys pulled it together and were able to self-fund it? Yeah. If if you can Uh, bootstrap, listen, whatever you can bootstrap, you can bootstrap. Yeah. Um, and, And we, the company that rented us, we were known in the community. So, you know, it was the negotiations were easier. Yep. Um... I think when we were established and we were there for many, many years, deliver and, and a lot of the people from this company, they you know their kids train there, they train yeah. there. So, um, but that takes a long time. Yeah, I think that takes a long time. So you know, but going big, bricks and mortar, and anybody, the bigger you go, the the more money you need. Yep. Right. The more customers you need, the more equipment you need, the more instructors. So I would say to anybody that is out there that you would just start, you start small. So you started small, then you saved up enough uh, resources to build out your own facility without taking outside capital or out, mm-hmm. without any loans, right. which is awesome. And then you brought you built out other locations around the country, though, mm-hmm. right? So now then yeah. you expand it. So maybe walk us through how you decided yeah, so we thought to this do was, it and how you did it. Yeah, so we thought that you know this could be a model. You don't need 14,000 square feet, but for 7,000 square feet, like the original building, that we could franchise it out okay. um, to put... Uh, PT and performance training in in a building. And so we grew to uh, California, Arizona, Texas, New York, um, Boston, were kind of the bricks and mortar. And then we started to get into schools too, into Mm -hmm. colleges and and build training programs that way. Um, And it's challenge. The challenge is, what's interesting is because the challenge that each state has its own rules and reimbursements from a PT standpoint. So, um, you know, some, and that's a, that was an important part to the business model is, is that you're getting money from the PT side and you're also getting it from the performance side. Right. Um, and those are all and anywhere you go, right. There's always this building, 7,000 square feet. This one's 5,500 square feet. This one only has 20 parking spaces. This one has 60 parking spaces. So each city has its own rules. Yeah. You know, like in Pasadena was, you needed ten parking spots per ten thousand square per thousand square feet. Hmm. That's a lot of parking in this for a gym town, especially yeah. <laughs> yeah. in this general area. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's kind of how it gets built out. Um, you know, you just have an idea and you just yeah, you just roll with it. Yeah. But it, in the end, it basically started working outside, training kind of youth athletes, and then coming inside and. Basically, for me, it was building our own classes. It was our, our own one-hour circuit training and, you know, running in the step. Like, the step mill and running were just, like, essential to what we did. Elevate your heart rate, mm-hmm. and people were satisfied. Yeah. So how, 
from start to finish, well, not start to finish, but let's say start to when you were less involved in cats, right? Mm-hmm. And you've, you kind of transitioned more into what you're doing now. Mm-hmm. How long was that? How long of a time period? Uh, pretty gradual. I got back involved in pro soccer 2011-2012 with okay. Chivas because uh, I'd left the Galaxy in 2003. I consulted with Columbus 2007-2008. So I, I've always kind of dabbled. I stayed in it. Um, mm-hmm. Then 2011 and 12 were in L.A. with Chivas um, and Robin Fraser, who's assistant coach at uh, Toronto now. And Greg Vandy was his assistant, who's the head coach in Toronto. Dan Kalichman, like these guys were all here. And they said, do you want to come back? And it just was the time was right uh, to get back and, and test, to get back in the pros. The league was getting better. Um, and my role would be different. Mm-hmm. It'd be expanded. It's not just performance or strength and conditioning. The role starts to expand to the academy. Mm-hmm. So then you have academy teams. You're trying to develop kids that are 14s, 16s, 18s, all the way up to the pro level. So it was taking all of my experience over all of those years right. and give me a chance to do that. And what would that look like? So the developing athlete that's 13 or 14 is a lot different than a 17, 18-year-old, which is different than a, mm-hmm. than a pro. A lot of similarities, but certainly from a growth and maturation standpoint, different. So 2011 and 12, Chivas ended up um, folding, and then that's, that's currently what LAFC is now. That's the ah, franchise. I, didn't, I guess I didn't make that connection ever. Yeah. Yeah. So in 2012, there, there are two owners and the owners, um, two brothers sold to the other owner. And about, I think it was a year or two later, the league came in and that was the end of that. Yeah. Um, and then 2014, I had a chance. So Greg Vandy, who's the head coach in Toronto, was the technical director and the academy director. And he said, you know, you want to come back and just come maybe a week a month mm-hmm. and consult and help us build the academy. And uh, I said, yeah, I mean, why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Be in LA for three weeks and go there for a week and help yeah. build the physical development curriculum for the academy, which I had done prior with Chivas and worked with a couple of other academies in LA. And then that year, <clears throat> the head coach of Toronto was fired and then Greg became the head coach. Um, so, I went out there to help him kind of transition for those couple of months, work with the academy and work really from the performance side. And then at the end of the year, he and the GM just approached me and said, you know, um, you want to come out here and do the performance side? I said, I'm not going to move to Toronto for, for that. <laughs> right? Right. They said, well, we're thinking about a role that you we bring together the performance side and the medical side. Mm-hmm. Um which is putting it all under one roof, director of sports science to be able to help communicate the information between parties. Because yeah. oftentimes in pro sports, it, things operate in a silo. You mm-hmm. have athletic therapists and physios in a silo, performance in a, in a silo, coaches in a silo, silo um, the docs, offsite, management, president, general manager, assistant general manager, need having different needs. Sure. And they were, they asked if I would, you know, come in and try to, pull those things together yep so then that was a challenge like here are the keys build what you think a department Mm -hmm. would look like and i think when you get that challenge so it's all my experience you know i think back to knocking down walls in 1995 which was medical side was pt with docs coming in there i did i'm not a pt i knew the performance side but i had been i had an understanding of how it all works together Mm -hmm. for 20 years yeah so i was totally comfortable doing it and i said yeah so that's been I'll give it a roll. four years now? Uh, this would be, yeah, this would be my fifth year doing Your fifth it. year. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to dive into more of that in just a second. Mm-hmm. The one thing I want to, for anybody kind of wondering how you went from training to cats to then kind of exiting cats, mm-hmm. how did that transition go? How did you uh, leave the business in other people's hands and not be involved in the day-to-day? Because that can be scary. It also can be... Uh, there can be some bad blood sometimes. I'm just kind of curious how you navigated well, changing Well, yeah, so that. Cats National, we still operate out of Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, we stopped the expansion in 2008, really, when the economy tanked yeah. and um, there were changes to health insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, Pasadena, I just kind of gave up my rights there to because I had to move. Yeah. Um, so I didn't want it to be a burden mm-hmm. for anybody. Mm-hmm. So I'm still president of Cats, and, you know, we just... That the facilities all operate 
um, independently. Right, because they're franchised, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. no big deal. So as deal. long as they're paying their licensing fee of sorts, yeah, so, then you're good to go. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, like anything, it's always, life is about change yeah. and transition. And I think if, if people are always trying to be fair, it's always good. Yeah. Spencer here with a quick note. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe. That way you don't miss out on any future episodes. And also, we'd love to connect with you in different ways. So give us a follow on social media at CoachNowApp. That way we can connect with you over there and uh, you can get further insight to a lot of coaching best practices uh, from not only us, but all the coaches and teachers and trainers that we work with. So with that, thanks for listening. Let's get back to the show. So let's dive back into the Toronto side of things, Mm -hmm. because during your time there, you guys have won the championship, Mm -hmm. right? You won the cup, which is really awesome. Yep. Most people listening to this will never have that experience being a part of something that that large. Mm -hmm. So maybe walk, walk us through kind of the path there, I guess, from when you started. Mm -hmm. And then there's also been um, a hangover of sorts a little bit, right? You win a championship and everyone Mm -hmm. expects this to repeat over and over again. That's not always the case. Maybe walk us through kind of how you built the program up to the the victory, what that was like. Mm -hmm. And then how do you come down from that and try to rebuild and win again? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, the journey, I mean, it's, it's interesting because so the end of 2014, I spent a couple of months, team doesn't make the playoffs. They had never made the playoffs. Okay. So 2015 starts, it's really my first time taking a stab at this, and the goal is, if you've never made the playoffs, is to make the playoffs. Sure. Like, you can have aspirations, say, I'm going to win the Super Bowl, I'm going to win the World Series, but if you've never made the playoffs, it's really tough to say that. Yeah. So, you know, your desire is to, to make the playoffs and to win the Canadian Championship. That was another part of it, okay. which, is, um, which is like the U.S. Open Cup. It, it's a competition between Canadian teams, lower division teams play each other to have the op- opportunity to play either Montreal, Vancouver, Toronto. We're the highest division, sure. like we're Division One. So the goal is like, man, but it, it's quick that, you know, you only you play four games to do that okay. throughout the season. So that was a target and then to make the playoffs. So we win the Canadian Championship was terrific. First trophy um, that I had experienced with Toronto. They had won the Canadian Championship in the past. And then we make the playoffs. And you get to the playoffs and we, on a Saturday, is the last game of the season. The playoff game is on Wednesday and we lose. So it was like four days. Yeah. But you made the playoffs. But you were, like, you had such a little joy. Yeah, 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 yeah. You show up in Montreal, and you lose, and you fly home and go, the season was only four days longer. <laughs> so it's kind of a moment of, um, what do we do really well? Yeah, yeah. And then, and then, what do we need to do moving? How do we take that, you know, forgetting it? Like, it's not good enough to make the playoffs. You've made the playoffs. So you can at least change the narrative that... We need to win a championship. Mm-hmm. And we have the players and the ability, and we think the format to do it. So then 2016 hits. Um, we win the Canadian championship again. We have a good season. We make the playoffs. The playoffs are tough, but we make it to the MLS Cup final. And because we had the best, better record than Seattle, we're in that MLS championship in 2016. So this is now... My second year full-time, I'm like, man, we're, we're at the MLS Cup. This is amazing. We dominate the game. Game ends 0-0. We lose in penalties. So that hurts a lot. Yeah. However, our, our offseason short, so this is like December 9th or 10th, and we start second week of January. Okay. There isn't a, there isn't a player on that team or on the staff that hasn't say, we are going to get back and we are going to do this. We are going to get back. We're not only that, we're going to win the Supporter Shield, which means best record, Canadian Championship, and win the MLS Cup. Like, we said it. The players believed it. And we went off. And 2017, we had, at the time, the best, the most points of any team in MLS history. We're the one that We won the Canadian Championship. We won the Supporter Shield. And then we're in the MLS Cup. And if we do that, we'll be the first team in history to ever win the treble, which is all three of those championships. Okay. We play Seattle again. Yeah. Game starts 10, 12 minutes in, and the goalie again, Stefan Fry, is having, he's making saves like the year before. We're like, and you can't tell me that everybody on the bench is like, oh, here we go again. But we score, and then we win 2 0. And, you know, the place is just 
and it's at home and it's yeah. pandemonium and everybody has their family there who've supported you your whole life and friends and they're all on the field and and it's a great moment mm-hmm. um and you're proud of it you made the statement you believed it and then the players executed i mean we just yeah. had great players that were just committed to the the idea of winning and committed to each other yeah so you talk about the hangover so then we when you win the Canadian Championships, it allows you to play in this thing called Champions League, which is similar, which I think everybody yeah, shared of in Europe. Me, and you shared me shared with me the story before, which made yeah. So we play the we play Mexican competition. We we make it to the final of Champions League. This is April now, so we've gone now 2016, a long year to lose MLS Cup, 2017 to win the MLS Cup, to to be in the final in April of Champions League. And a, and a MLS team has never won Champions League ever. Yeah, and we lose penalties. Ugh. Which reminds me of 2016, right? Sure. Uh, and then, you know, we just, after that, and we had run, we had t- eight additional games in the first 10 weeks of the season. And we had some injuries after that. And it, we never caught up. Yeah. Yeah, we never caught up. It just never, it never happened. And I don't know if it's as much of a hangover other than, you know, when your best players don't play, you have less chance of winning. Sure. Like anything. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it wasn't. Nope. And as you're recalling that story, yeah, it's not as much of the expectations. It's more of the scheduling. Like you guys, it just, was brutal. Just ran right into it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, we traveled. We trained at altitude, played in heat, um, humidity, and you know, we're in Canada and it's February, and then we're playing in 85. The guys are playing 85 yeah. degree heat with 80 percent humidity at 6,000 feet. Yep. And ba- and winning and battling, but the, just the residual impact of. There was a letdown after losing that. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, with all you're so close and so close, and, and having been the closest, closer than any team in history, and and you had this historical run prior to that, yeah. uh, and it's hard. Then you just don't, just didn't kind of shake it off, and then yeah. we just didn't, ha- we weren't able to put our best players on the field. If you think about Durant goes down, mm-hmm. what if he doesn't go down? Right. But when your best guys are down. Doesn't matter the sport, and you're you're playing at the highest level. Yeah, and the other team has their best players playing. Then it makes it more difficult. So from a from a sports science perspective, right, as well as a, just an overall performance perspective, your guys are just absolutely worn out. There's a lot of injuries. Morale is probably not that great in the entire organization. I mean, how what kind of steps do you take to rebound from that kind of thing? Yeah, I think it's important that when you you always are looking big picture. Okay. Yeah, some guys are down. We lost. We're struggling to make the playoffs. We won the Canadian Championship, even though, but it didn't. It's so funny. We won and last year, and it didn't feel like we won anything because sure. we we're on this. We're struggling to try to get into the playoffs. We kind of ignore it, but you should never ignore when any chance that you won a championship. Sure. Right. But it was the most bizarre trophy ceremony. There was just a lot less enthusiasm because we we're struggling, mm-hmm. having had this great year the year before that we're struggling to make the playoffs. Um, but you just got to think. And remember and say, the people that are around here, the players we have, the staff that we have, have been incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. There are circumstances that we've gone through that no team has ever gone through, playing eight games in ten weeks to start a season. The team, the Mexican competition, they are close to the end of their season. We're just starting preseason. Got it. So they're at, at an advantage. So you have to be try to take the emotion out of it as much as it stings that this is something nobody's experienced, and we've learned a lot from it. Mm-hmm. I actually brought Kitman Labs in and about midway through and said, there are variables in the model that we used in the past, just from a training load standpoint, that don't work when you start a season like this. Mm-hmm. Can you help? Yeah. And so they did. And we found if you are the, the risk factors of travel above five hours, heat, humidity, over 30, showed up fit or unfit, that... You could start to the variables that variable A, B, and C can contribute to this much more risk for the player. Mm-hmm. But in the end, the biggest risk was number of games in a short period of time. Yeah. If you have one game in a week, guys, let's say that's one time risk of injury. If you had three games in a week, it doubles the player's risk that play ninety minutes. If you have five games in fifteen days and the same guys play, they're at twelve times risk. So then you just, the idea of squad rotation and who plays and who doesn't play, 
when you travel so that the variables change. Mm-hmm. And so then you get a better idea. So you have to take it as a learning opportunity. Because mm-hmm. um, it's if you otherwise you're just going to say, well, well, this is just crappy. Mm-hmm. Well, wait a minute. We were just the most successful team of all time. We, we've never experienced this before. Let's be honest. We need to do a better job of this next time. Yep. What can we learn from it so this group can then move forward? Yep. Which is not easy because your, your pride hurts and yeah, and, you, and your expectation is that it's a winning organization. Right. So when those things happen, you know, are you going to go good to great? Yeah. You know, good organizations can weather the storm. Great ones take that information and, and then they're, they're successful in the future. Yeah. And you expressed to me, which is totally an obvious kind of no-duh statement, right? When you're struggling the from the top down, it's kind of a melancholy vibe, right? So how how do you kind of, again, because this is still very interesting to me, right? How mm-hmm. you kind of change the mindset. Is there... Has there been any, let's say, aha moments within the organization that that you can point to or any particular person that seems to be like the ultimate cheerleader that has an effect? I guess how, aside from winning a game, right, because mm-hmm. that makes people feel better, but right. you got to do a lot of work before that. Yeah. So you take the lessons and you try to absorb them, but I think changing the overall culture of an entire organization mm-hmm. uh, when they're down is yeah. hard, right? So. Mm-hmm tips or ideas or yeah, past I think experiences on how that's worked. Sure, because you, when you're winning uh, and there are things that are going on that aren't optimal, mm-hmm. they tend to get, I don't know if ignore might be too strong words, swept under the carpet or just... Because the results are there. The results the are there. the process might be cracking. Yeah, the yeah. process may not have been optimal prior, but you're, you're, you're moving forward and things are good. So when things go bad you the, everything gets magnified yeah well, analyze everything yeah and yeah. then it can go the other way right so it's i think it's important that you um you're as objective as you can be that you try to eliminate your own biases which is really difficult super to do hard, that you yeah. look at super kind of like hard objective numbers based on this when we have this many players that are at this level play we're far more likely to win yes mm-hmm. okay that's a that's that's you're looking at kind of objective info rather than hey every time we fly to the west coast we lose well if you believe that if you look and then you say well that's not true right you can look and say well we're i'm making things up right sure. we're two and five or two and four well that's not good enough then what can we change mm-hmm. for instance in montreal we had not been successful i was like why do we stay at this hotel then you, have, you can change throughout the year. You can, there are three. You can take three of ho- the, the suggested hotels by the league, but go somewhere else. I'm like, well, let's change the hotel then. Mm. Let's go to a different neighborhood, a up. different coffee shop. Yeah. It's close to McGill University. It's got a great hill for the staff to run. It's got a great coffee shop on the corner. We beat. We lost to them in the playoffs the year before. Then we beat them in the playoffs. And we beat them for the, the Canadian Championship. And we've been very successful since we did that. Spring New England, which is a turf field in Patriot Place in Foxborough, Mashon, not in Boston. Mm-hmm. Just walk out there, maybe twenty shops and restaurants. We're not successful, so we're going to stay in Boston. Mm. So I, again, I think it's that when you're not successful, let's not generalize. Mm-hmm. Let's let's be specific. I'd say that to anybody. Yeah, you make it well. When we do this, then this happens. Well, are you sure? Let's really dig in to find out if that's true or not. Well, and you also don't want to change thirty things because right. you have no idea what what right. caused the change. Yeah. right after you mix the whole bag up. Yeah, so uh, you know it's funny, and and maybe this is a good point to talk about it. So when we're doing the looking at GPS, the guys wear GPS yep. and heart rate. GPS to measure external load, the amount of work, with volume and intensity the amount of work and how difficult it is, and then heart rate is an internal load of how stressful it was uh-huh. in that session, um, which is all key. So as we're trying to, we create a drill breakdown sheet, so we're putting a value on, hey, coaches, these are your drills, and this is how much they cost to the player, speed-wise, change of direction, etc. Okay. So we want to be able to collaborate with them. Here's what the game looks like, and here's what training looks like. Mm-hmm. So how are we going to get the coaching staff to say, okay, this is interesting to us. So we looked at the top three subjective performances for the players. Mm -hmm. 
and the bottom three, not results. And then looked at what the training looked like the four days before the game for each one of the players. Okay. To see if we find any patterns, and inevitably we did. We found that on four days before a game, if the kind of central midfielders did a lot of high-speed running, somehow that may have impacted their performance on game day. And then if on game day minus two, which is two days before the game, there was a high amount of high XLD cell for certain positions, they weren't the, these players weren't as successful. So maybe we're doing too much in tight two days before a game that was somehow linked to their performance. So when you talk to the coach, say, hey, this is the game four days before a game, three, two, one. This is physically the training should look like this. Mm-hmm. Well... And everybody's like, well, based on what? How far they ran or how fast they ran in the game doesn't doesn't matter because it depends on the formation. It depends on the temperature, how they were playing. Was the game fast or not? Did we keep the ball? Like I said, no, based on on your ratings of the players when they played well or when they didn't play well. Mm -hmm. So if you are in this field and you are looking to collaborate, it is making sure that you are just quantifying the information for the coach. And then trying to figure out how you can collaborate that that it's helpful for them. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's kind of key. But that is, that's a lesson that you take moving forward. How are we preparing day before a game, two days before a game, three days before a game? Have we changed from the year that we were 2016, 2017, we've been successful? Do we need to look at an even deeper dive into what we do two days before a game, mm-hmm. linking it to performance of the players? So it's kind of going back. If you've had success, go back to where you were successful and make sure it looks and smells the same. Mm-hmm. Maybe you've changed things that you're unaware of. Mm-hmm. Maybe you need to look deeper into things that you've done in the past. Um, because if, you've had a, if you have a belief system and you've had success, there are always these new things. And that's for any of us out there training, right? Yeah. If, is fat good? Is it not good? Is protein good? Is it not good? Are carbohydrates good? Or are they not good? I mean, I've been around so long that I don't know. I think... I don't even know what's good anymore, right? You know what I'm getting to. So there's always a new tool. There's always going to be a new toy. But your philosophy that you've been successful in getting results for your customers, your clients, stick to it. Yep. And then add to it. And it's really easy to get away from that. Well, speaking of that, right? So you said something I found very interesting, and I think we all do it. When things are working... You ignore some of the early warning signs, yes. Right? Because as the as the person that's not actually performing the activity, mm-hmm. right? I'm not right. the golfer. I'm not yep. the soccer player. I'm behind the scenes. Yeah. If you change something and the results change, even though you you're noticing that maybe it'll cause greater harm down the road, yeah. Then you're blamed, or you have the potential of being blamed, right? So. Moving forward, right, into these future mm-hmm. seasons and these future yep. endeavors that we're all in, like, h- how do you build up the courage, I guess, I don't know, to call out the, yeah. the cracking process even when the results are there because you kind of know that if you keep doing it, mm-hmm. the whole thing will fall off the rails. Yeah, and I think it's integrity, expectations, accountability. Um, if you set expectations... And the expectations aren't met, or your athlete is accountable for doing these things, and they don't happen. You've already discussed the expectations and what you're accountable for, and when they're not met, you can have an honest conversation about it. So even if the results a, are there, as long as you're very clear you, about the expectations of the process, mm-hmm. you've created a channel of communication, a safer space to bring yeah. things up. Yeah, and it's integrity. It's like my word and your word. Yeah, and and we've come to this together. So. You are giving me when, let's just use being late, right? You've been late for two practices, right? But you're doing so well, I don't want to upset the apple cart. What people? That's what I'm saying, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. But early, when you first say, like, when you're on time, these are the things, these are the expectations that we're, that you and I are both accountable for, that I show up at this time, you show up at this time, right. and then this is how you warm up, and this is how you prepare. When that is not met, we we talk about it. Yeah. Because those, when that happens, it starts to unravel, and now you're not successful, and you haven't stuck with that. Because, well, you should have held me accountable for this. Right. Yeah, well, could be. Yeah. Just, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think um, there's a great book called Difficult Conversations that, that we all struggle with. There are some that are easier than others. And you've got to know, as a coach or a trainer, where you struggle. You know, it's that self-awareness thing. Yeah. 
I'm uncomfortable with these kind of conversations. How am I going to get better at having those? Because inevitably, you go, oh, I hope this doesn't happen. I, we're doing just fine. Eventually, you're not going to be doing fine. Nope. The team is going to be doing fine. The athlete's not going to be doing fine. And have you done everything in your power that you think can contribute to success? Yeah. And if you can't answer yes, then you know that there was a moment where you were, you didn't do it. You didn't talk about it. Have you, have you seen in your career, because there's a, there's a movement right now, kind of, it's this underground kind of business movement, where they're talking about fire your top performer in the, in the sense that if they're a virus to the rest of the organization, right, they're just a jerk mm-hmm. and they're not responsible for the basics of the business, but they're just selling like crazy, you should still send a message that it's about the team, right? And that just because you're having success now doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to sustain that. Um, so it's okay to s- let the best performer go, knowing that they're going to cripple the entire organization's success because they're just uh, a cancer on the uh, the culture. Mm-hmm. So in the in the world of sports, have you seen at any time in your career where maybe the the recognized best player, or highest performer, isn't necessarily following the guidelines of the team, and have they been? Um, called out on it or have are they usually let to just kind of skate by because they're scoring goals well it's funny because uh, i think of steve kerr he said talks about culture yeah and his is interesting he says culture is set by the top two or three players mm-hmm. and the bottom two or three players uh, okay yeah and i don't think anybody really thinks of it yeah that way very often uh and i in answer to your question when you determine that there's a culture of accountability, integrity, trust, um, and you agree to things as a team, players and staff, yeah. then you live up to that. You try to do your best to live up to that. Does everybody always know? I don't, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's how, do you, you know, it's how do you address it? Is it the captain that addresses it? Do you have a leadership council of three or four or five top players that address it? Some, some teams do that. Is it the head coach that just... Gets rid of them, or benches them for a period or benching of time. them. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's it's a hard answer because if you think of the uh, NFL where they're not guaranteed contracts, you can just have somebody else's waiting for your job. Where our contracts and with our salary cap, if you have somebody that's a productive player, you're not going to be able to. And you spend money, you're not going to be able to find five or ten more productive players. Yeah, like you just don't have enough enough money. Um, but what's important is if, if it can be self-regulated by the players, that they believe in a culture of accountability, that that's the best way forward. Um, it's not easy because everybody's trying to keep their job. Remember, it's right. this is how I all get we all get paid this way. Right. And it could be that you and I are both playing the same position. Am I going to love you when you're playing before me and then I'm, I'm at the end of my contract this year? Right. And if you're playing all the time and I'm not, that's hard. Like that's the big challenge I think in professional sports, especially with salary cap, is like so somebody's looking for your job. Right. Yeah, we want to keep harmony. <laughs> Which so tricky, huh? It's tricky. Yeah. I think it's um it's a tricky business. And the thing about I think people use culture now. It's kind of a buzz. I it's feel sure. like that's it's the buzzword. Buzzword. It is. Um that it's it's first it's environment. Accepting, inclusive, safe, honest welcoming place for everybody to come in caring family etc to start right if you do that and everybody feels like they're part of that that's an environment thing a culture of winning and learning and hard work it moves like you can always keep the environment i'm going to make sure that everybody feels like they're part of it and how we do that whether it's new families coming to toronto um how they get welcomed all of those things are important to us that's creating an environment yeah then the culture is dri- driven by the players, and the players change. Yeah. So it's always kind of it's always kind of moving. Yeah. But if you, it's a culture of learning and a culture of always wanting to get better, that's what it's going to take. If you look at the Patriots, like them or not, it's about winning. Yeah. It's about learning. It's about doing your job. So when there is yourself accountable, when there is such turnover, I mean, some organizations have had the same coach for a long, long mm-hmm. time, right? Or the same GM or, or ownership. I don't know the world nearly as well as you do, but it seems like there's quite a bit of turnover throughout multiple leagues and different mm-hmm. uh, sports, right? 
So maybe speak to that, right? You're the new guy coming in just a few years ago, mm-hmm. and there's a new head coach all at the same time. Yeah. There's been some players that are still have been there for a while. It's not mm-hmm. like they were all brand new. Yeah. So how do you come together and, and kind of introduce new concepts, new ideas, and, and, and accelerate buy-in, I guess, right? How yeah. do you get the buy-in? Well, I think it's um, when a new, new staff comes in, people are kind of step back a little bit. Oh, here we go, new staff. And they're maybe worried about right. getting cut, right? Maybe having their job, that, right? Yes, yes. How am I going to stick around? Mm-hmm. But underlying that is players all want to win. Mm-hmm. I want to be part of a winning team. I want to hoist an MLS Cup. And if the staff comes in, it's organized, it's professional, it makes sense, we're learning, we're getting better, you like it. Yep. Because the way it was before may have been, I, I don't know, may have been unorganized, it may have been chaotic, it may have been this or that, but if it's a, the process is in place and these are our beliefs and we're getting better on the field and we're having success and we're improving and it looks like a championship culture or a team, that's kind of buy-in. But from my standpoint, funny when I start to think about buy-in, like we get players coming from South America, from Europe. Sure. The idea from just from the works, let's just say from strength and conditioning, okay. just strength training, coming into the gym. How do you get buy-in? If we get a player coming from Europe that's getting paid five, six, seven million dollars, and I tell my staff, I said, listen, this player makes a lot of money doing this, and he got there without us. Let's start there. Good point. Right. Yeah. Okay, so he's been very successful. So let's figure out what he feels has been key to his success in our domain so we can make sure that he can continue to do that the way he wants to do it. He will then be see what we believe in and how we fit in, whether it's strength training, which day is important, what are the exercises based on position and age and injury history. They have to want to do it. If you try to force somebody that this is what you have to do that's been very successful, why wouldn't you get pushed back? Right. I got here without you. Who are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have a great reputation, but I, had, I, had, I was doing this. You know, There's more than one way to skin a cat. So over time, I said, it's got to be something that's intrinsic belief that it's going to help them. And then we know that if they do certain exercises and lift, and do the, they'll feel stronger and fitter and better and be more durable. We know that. Yep. But it has to come from the athlete. It can't come from us. That's a hard perspective, I think, for people in our field. Well, I know better. And this stuff they were doing before, yeah, that's not that great. Well, it's great enough that they're national team players and they're making a lot of money. Well, I think even if you if you peel that all the way back, bring that all the way back to you know, the busy professional, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I'm meaning more of just standard training, not even at the yeah. super high performance level. I think we can all do a better job of asking questions on yeah. what's worked, what did you do before? Because mm-hmm. maybe where they are now, overweight, hurt, mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily where they used to be. Maybe they right. were a high-performing athlete right. at one point and they did things that were successful and maybe yeah. it's trying to get back to whatever mm-hmm. that was because mm-hmm. it's familiar to them. Mm-hmm. So at the super high-performance level, what you're at, you got to be way more sensitive to that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. 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 And, and I think you know going to the... To the trainer level, if, if it is somebody in your interviewing process and you're starting with a new customer, it's what are the exercises they like, the activities that they enjoy that yeah. in their past? Right. Because they're far more likely to, to, to continue to do that and get healthy by doing things they like. If I've never rode a bicycle before, why would you put them on a bike? This, yeah, that's for me. I'm like, I don't know. That's not appealing right? to me. Yeah. yeah. It's not, not appealing. Then eventually you're going to go, I don't want to sit on this thing. I don't want to sit in a saddle again. I don't no. want to ride a bike. Yeah. Right? If you have somebody that was in track and field and liked to sprint then they and they enjoyed that, then if you can get them doing those things that remind them of the way they felt in the past right. and just be patient with it, that might be the fastest way to get there, the best way. Yeah. Because it's got to be joyful on some level yeah. and rewarding. At the end, I go, man, I feel good. I haven't felt this good in 20 years. I sweat like that when I used to play whatever. Because that's what we're trying to do is ignite that within them. Yep. That now I'm going to have this behavior and have it for the rest of my life. Yep. That's what we are. We are we are trying to bring behavior change. And it's not your program, right? It's what sparks that in that person. 
And it's the same. It's the same for the pros. What is the spark that we can get them to come in and do the extra exercise that we want them to do? Because yeah. we know that it will enhance their performance, build durability. And there are three things I say. One, enhance their performance, build durability, increase longevity. So if we can get somebody that's in their 30s to play for another four or five years, that's a good way to make a living. That's, that's if we can do that. In order to do that, they need to be more durable. Yep. In order to do that, then we need to do our prep before training, hit the gym afterwards. And then how do you enhance performance? It could be on the field. It could be in recovery. It, it, it's all of those things. You know, we have to deal, we do measure external load, internal response, and then recovery is another important part of that. Whether that's massage, hot, cold contrast, cryo chamber, skins, um, all of those things are key. Some athletes don't even think about that. Because I say you're the training, you're recover from, recovering right. from training. Today I trained for three hours, then the next 21 hours about recovering to the next session. Yep. Whatever I eat, drink, sleep matters. Because that will then enhance your performance, unquestionably. Yep. So we are absolutely going to do a part two, three, four, probably all the way to 10. Because okay. we can talk for a long time. For the purpose of this one, I think we'll wrap it for now. Mm-hmm. But before we do, right, for anybody that's yep. out there listening to this... Um, maybe the last subject I want to highlight for maybe one or two minutes and I'll mm-hmm. maybe lead into another conversation we have in the future um, about youth development, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we're not going to talk about the academy just yet because I mm-hmm. want to have a specific conversation about how that works because yeah. a lot of people are interested in yeah. how we can adopt more of these European mindsets mm-hmm. to building youth programming into the pros, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but let's just talk about the chronological age, mm-hmm. right, versus your developmental age. Yeah. Let's just talk about that for just like one or two minutes, sure. and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Sure. Uh, I, I would, before that, I would say any, when kids are really young, it's about coordination, okay. spatial awareness. Can you catch, throw, kick, skip, walk backwards? If you can do all of those things before you're 10, 11, 12 years old, you can probably participate in just about anything. Cool. That's a good way to look at it. Uh, yeah. Get coordinated. Yeah. Play as many games as you can. Uh, get as many exposures, whether it's gymnastics, judo, basketball, soccer, track, golf. Learn how to do all of those things. Yep. Um, and you'll have now this kind of this this movement vocabulary that you could use for the rest of your life. So when you start to get to maturation, so prepubescent, you do that. The relative age effect and the idea of chronological age, bio- biological age, when somebody's going through their growth spurt, we need to make adjustments in their training program. Mm -hmm. And you could say, well, for girls, it's 11, boys, it's 12. For girls, it's 12, boys, it's 13. Well, there are some 16-year-olds, boys, that are still not there, haven't haven't reached their growth spurt. And there's some girls that it could be done by 12. And you kind of know when it's going on. Like, we can can use the Kamish Roche or the Mirwal method and predict it. You know when a kid's grown. Mm -hmm. So when that's happening, they need to sleep and rest because growing requires a ton of energy so how we do that at least in the academy is we try to limit the training we get rid of one day of training and we limit the amount of game minutes per month because the game is the most intense part of the week for Mm -hmm. sure just to allow them to grow yeah that a lot of kids quit for many reasons by the time they're 13 years old because they're not successful, it was too competitive, coach wasn't a good teacher, it's not fun anymore. Well, it's not fun when you're not playing well. And when you go through growth spurts, you're often not. So you have a reduction in mobility, flexibility, reduction in coordination. We know that too. So our feedback, when these kids are going through growth spurt, we need to monitor, and we can, this could be a whole conversation on how we monitor training load and That's adjust it. We're going to get there. That's one. But two, you know what's happening. Immediately, your shortstop, who at 12 was an all-star, and at 13, the ball's going through his legs. He grew three and a half inches. He doesn't have the mobility to get down there anymore. He doesn't stink now. Right. You know that in that moment, this kid is hating it. Just say, listen, you're growing. It's okay. It's going to take a few more for a few more months for you to get the mobility, to get your coordination back, and you'll be able to get down and get that ground ball. Do not talk about the result. You let the ball go through your legs. It's the process, and the process is you're growing. Yeah. And be patient. It's a good thing. So for us, we don't have to be experts in the field at all. You know the kids growing. You know they're struggling. Their feet used to be size six, and they're tens. 
How do you expect them to run? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he trips in the outfield. Well, no kidding, of course. Right. So let's say as they're going through it, our communication, our feedback, and the information we give is just supportive of them as they go through a tough time. Not only that, they're getting zits. Oh, man. <laughs> sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. I got big feet, I got pimples, and I'm not good at my sport. Yep. I hate it. Mm-hmm. We know that. Our role is to encourage them and say it's all part of the process. It's okay. And I think if we could do one thing in youth coaching as, as kids go through those tough times, make it a positive. Perfect, man. Yeah, so we're going to talk way more about all these subjects because you and I talked mm-hmm. for a long time. But uh, thanks, man. Yeah, I know a lot of people will get a lot out of this and uh, we'll pick up another episode soon. All right, man. Thank thanks. you. Appreciate it. Hey there, Spencer here again with a quick reminder. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to review, share, and subscribe. It's our goal to make as big an impact on the coaching world as we can, and your support helps us do that in a big way. So again, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time.